And I also remember hitting the deck. The navigator saying, what's wrong with you, Mid? You don't want to worry about those shills, they've already gone over. The ones you need to worry about are those you can't hear. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anything happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no one And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. And so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain Proud of the crew. Proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Angus Horden spoke with Rear Admiral Rothsay Swan, a veteran of the Second World War in Vietnam. I'm Angus Horden and I'm joined today by Rothsay Swan. Rothsay, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It is indeed a pleasure to be here. Rosthay, can we start where it all began for you? Where were you born? I was born in Orange in uh, 105 Bing Street. I spent six weeks there in a pram in the snow, and then the family moved to Punchbowl in Sydney. So what was it like growing up through the Great Depression? We moved from Punchbowl eventually down to um, Corowa, where my father was the headmaster of the high school. That was in 1940. I started school at the age of four in Golgong in 1936. That was a year younger than normal. And of course, in those days, there was no childcare centre or anything like that. So I actually started at school and my father was the headmaster. We used to drive down to Sydney every school holidays and stayed at Barclay Court in Bondi, from where I used to be taken to Farm Cove, where we used to picnic, and I used to love watching the naval ships in, at, anchored out there. Do you have any family who served during the Great War? No, my wife does have family who served during the Great War, but none of my family did. So was there any other military history in the family? No. So what then inspires you with no military history and indeed a boy from the bush deciding to go to sea? Well, what happened was my father was the headmaster at the school in Corowa and he was very interested in international affairs. And I can recall us listening to the shortwave radio in the 1930s and he advised all the children that would be of military age by the end of the war, and he thought the war would go on for more than four years, he advised them all to join the services as cadets and become professional as opposed to amateurs. And he decided, knowing my interest in the Navy, that he would apply for me to join the Naval College, which I did, and that's how it all started. I joined the Naval College on the 31st of January 1940, and that's where life began, where they started making men out of boys. Uh, We had a good academic training, but there was a great emphasis on sport and on physical training and so on. We used to uh, compulsory play either rugby, hockey uh, in the winter 
Uh, of course, there were lots of cross-country runs, and in the summer we played tennis and hockey. So where exactly were you doing all your training? Down at Flinders Naval Depot at the Naval College on Western Port. So when do you finish training and you are deployed for active service abroad? I finished in October 1943, where I joined the Shropshire when it came out from England. And can you tell us about life on board this county-class cruiser? I recall that I was under training, of course, and we had to spend a month or so in each department. We used to sleep in hammocks. The ship was not air-conditioned. We certainly used to get hot. Most of the time, you were wetter after a shower than you were before you had one. And you're a midshipman on board at this stage. Yes. Which is the lowest level of officer rank, but you're expected to do practically anything they throw at you type thing. That's correct. My action station in the Shropshire was midshipman of the watch on the bridge when the ship wasn't under air attack. And if the ship was under air attack, my action station was in the starboard barrage site uh, up on the bridge level. So what was it like for you in those early days on board Shropshire at war? It's hard to remember really other than the fact that it was quite strenuous. We used to spend 80% of the time at action stations. Later on, in, when it was in uh, the Philippines, we used to be fed at action stations. One had a very comfortable bunk, uh, which was a steel deck, and your pillow was your May West. So life was fairly hectic. So during this time, Shropshire was taking part in New Britain operations before the major action for you, which was up in the Philippines. Was there any particular times in pre-Philippines that you recall? In Shropshire, I, I recall the very first time we went to Milne Bay, where we were fueling, and there was an air raid, and we had to leave harbour fairly quickly, leave the wharf. We then, I can recall, bombarding Cape Gloucester, but I really don't have any recollection of what happened then until we started going off to the Philippines. So if we go to the Philippines, which is a very significant period of action for Shropshire, can you share some of those particular events? I can remember a number of kamikaze aircraft coming in towards us. I can also remember swimming once, thinking I was in the water after the ship had been dive-bombed. The ship disappeared in uh, great columns of water. Even the bridge was filled with water, and the barrier site that I was in was filled with water, and I thought we were both in, in the water, but we were still on board. That's one incident which I'll never forget. The other one was in the last great naval battle. I was the officer of the watch during that battle, because the normal officer watch was the assistant navigator and he was transferred to Australia after Australia had been hit to take her out of Lingayen Gulf for repairs. I can well remember that night battle. I can remember the tinkle tinkle on the ship's side from those Japanese shells that, that landed short. I can always remember seeing the splashes. I can also remember a number of broadsides going over with the wine of the shells and I also remember hitting the deck. The navigator saying what's wrong with you mid you don't want to worry about those shells they've already gone over. The ones you need to worry about are those you can't hear. Rossay, the 
engagement you talk about is the Battle of Surigao Strait. Yes. And it is a battle that really not enough is told about. It was the last time, as you said, that big capital ships came up and fired at each other. It was the last night engagement of its type. And of course, Shropshire was part of the American Seventh Fleet, and it was part of the biggest naval battle of all time, which was the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And you were involved in all of that. And you can recall the particular action when the Yamashiro, which was a gigantic Japanese battleship, came towards you. And this is a ship that holds a firepower far superior to yours. It has 14 14-inch guns and you have eight 8-inch guns. And it was explained to me by many of the Shropshire boys and indeed naval personnel afterwards that even though the Americans were alongside you, you had a very capable captain at the time. Your skipper was Godfrey Nichols. And he had especially loaded up as much ammunition of every type that he could. And it was explained to me the Americans had actually dispelled a lot of their ammunition and were holding back. And you guys were on the point. You were picket right at the end of the line. So the Yamashiro was closest to you than the others. And when you opened up, you fired with shells that use cordite. And consequently, your fire illuminated the whole area. So Yamashiro saw you before everyone else fired at you more than anyone else. And if any of those shells that she fired at you had actually hit you, well, with respect, we wouldn't be talking today because my dad, who was a shipmate of yours on board with you, would have gone down most tragically. Can you tell us what life was like under that wonderful skipper, Godfrey Nichols, and how that night action really resonates with you today? I do remember the captain because I was midshipman of the watch on the bridge. And I can remember one thing. I was a bit worried when he said that I should be the officer of the watch during that major battle service action. And he said to me, don't worry, just do as I tell you. Just repeat the orders I give you. That's what I can remember. He was a fantastic captain. The other thing I remember is that at the beginning of every day in that ship in Leyte Gulf and Lingayen Gulf, we said prayers. The chaplains said prayers every day. And I believe that was the captain who was, I wouldn't say a, a very religious man, but certainly a gentleman in the extreme. And he looked after his ship's company. He wanted the ship's company to feel that someone was looking after them. I've heard that said before. My father, in fact, mentioned that Captain Nichols on the microphone that morning said the prayer saying, mm. Dear Lord, we're going to be very busy today. Please don't forget us. Mm. I remember it brought a tear to his eye as, as equally I feel moved by recalling the story now. And Rosso, were you also involved when Shropshire later went on and provided naval gunfire support to Corregidor? No. I left uh, Shropshire about 10 days after the landing in Lingayen Gulf. Uh, three of us midshipmen were put ashore in Lingayen Gulf and we went out to the new American airfield which had been made and we left Lingayen on the top of crates inside a DC-3. The three of us were lying on top of the crates in the DC-3 and we flew from there to Leyte and then from Leyte to Biak and from Biak 
after four or five attempts to get over the Owen Stanley Ranges, we ended up in Townsville and went by train back to Sydney. So basically when all the kamikazes and the big fightings finished, they think, well, we'll find another job for you. So you're posted back to Australia. Well, I was due, to, of course, as a midshipman to go to England for sub-lieutenant's courses. And so I came back to Australia, went in a troop ship, the New Amsterdam, across to New Zealand through Panama to New York and across the Atlantic and arrived in Liverpool. And I was in England at the end of the war. Uh, and when you say the end of the war, that was um, VE Day? Yes, I was in Portsmouth and three or four of us, in fact, seven of us, got in a, a Woolsey Hornet motor car. We had uh, armour from a UK establishment. We got dressed up in the armour and we charged round Portsmouth, cheering like everyone else was. The police were marvellous. You could do anything. Fortunately for you, you, and this is just the story of the Navy, indeed any military period, that you really went through the thickest period that Shropshire went through. Which, yes. were, which was the Philippines and Leyte Gulf and Sirigaro Strait and got through fortunately, unlike the Aussie, which scored so many of those kamikaze hits. But you're now in England, you are pursuing your career, what's next? Well, we did sub-lieutenant's courses. I was in England on VP day, as it were, then too. At the end of that, I was posted to HMS St Angelo in Malta for uh, a future posting. Having done a short minesweeping course, I was posted to HMS Octavia, Ocean Minesweeper, and I spent the first half of 1946 sweeping mines off Tunisia. I was a, made the navigator of Octavia, and the last few months of 1946, we were allocated to border patrol off Palestine, where we used to prevent merchant ships full of Jews as trying to escape from Europe and trying to beach themselves on the coast of Palestine, as it was then. We uh, used to go alongside these merchant ships at 14 knots. The two ships would bang together. Our boarding party would jump into the ship and be confronted with uh, pitchforks and all sorts of things. Coming alongside the ships, we used to get showered with bottles of urine, with any tinned meat, tin cans they could find. And the only way we could subdue the people on board was by firing tear gas shells. It was a very stressful time. I lost a lot of weight and ended up in hospital in the United Kingdom at the end of 1946 before I came back to Australia. Ross, you hold a great array of postings in the UK and back home over the course of the 1950s and the 1960s, including Fleet Communications Officer aboard Melbourne and the XO on Voyager. We could chat for hours on it all, but in the interest of time and jumping ahead a bit to your promotion as captain. But before we do, are there any particular standout memories that you have over that period? I qualified as a communication officer in 1953 and was posted to assistant communication officer in the home fleet under Sir Philip Vine. I then was seasick in Indomitable as I had been in rough weather in Shropshire and Arunta and the RN thought I should be unfit for naval service and I should be discharged. I fought against that and ended up as an instructor in uh, Mercury. Then after that I came back 
uh, to Australia and uh, served in Melbourne as a flag lieutenant uh, to Admiral Gattaca and as a fleet communication officer. I then was posted to Voyager as first lieutenant, a posting I well remember. I then was posted to CETO headquarters as a naval planner. That was exciting. After that, I was um, posted as the commanding officer to commission HMAS Derwent. That was the first ship that had service-to-air missiles on board, the Seacat. It had a variable death sonar and uh, the Icaro. We were posted up to the Far East, and I remember being allocated as the destroyer which followed the Eagle, the big aircraft carrier, and we followed the Eagle everywhere. And the captain of the Eagle was a marvellous man, Captain Empson, who became an admiral. When Eagle was invited, when we went into port, into Hong Kong, for instance, if Eagle was invited and he was invited as a captain, then Derwent was included, and he insisted that I, as the captain of Derwent, went wherever he went. And he also insisted, for instance, a number of chief petty officers and so on from Derwent went to functions where Eagle was. So he was marvellous. And Rosse, can you help explain to some of our listeners why a destroyer would necessarily be tasked with following an American carrier? In those days, carriers always had a destroyer, a few cables astern, so that if an aircraft went in the ditch and so on. It was a rescue destroyer. And also, the other task was that the destroyer would be sent into port or sent somewhere to collect the mail for the carrier. We were, in other words, um, their big boat. <laughs> in December 1966, you're promoted to skipper. So you, you are captain and your position as the director of manning and training early the following year. Then in April 69, you become the commanding officer on Hobart. Can you tell us how Hobart is a different ship to Derwent? Yes, Derwent really didn't have the speed or the firepower that Hobart had. I mean, Hobart was a real fighting ship. Derwent was an anti-submarine ship. Mainly, we spent our time searching for submarines, whereas Hobart was a ship which had guns and missiles and was a real fighting ship, you might say, up at the front line. Quite different. And indeed, many of the old Navy have said that the DDG class were our last real fighting ship looking vessels that we had as we later progressed on to the American frigates. That I would agree with. As I say, up till Vietnam and the DDGs, we were a fleet mainly interested in anti-submarine warfare. Even the carrier we had a whole lot of anti, uh, helicopters and gannets and so on, mainly for anti-submarine work, trying to find submarines. Whereas the DDGs were the first ships that had real firepower. And they, in my opinion, remain so until we get the latest air warfare destroyers. So you're in one war in World War II. Another war starts with Vietnam. You're the skipper on Hobart, and you're now attached to the 7th Fleet again. So this is the same fleet that you were attached to when you were on Shropshire back in the previous war. Can you tell us about your experiences on Hobart in Vietnam? The moment we arrived in Vietnam, we were on the gun line supporting the army. We used to have some day-by-day bombardments and so on to help the army, but mainly we fired at night. And the idea then was to... The army wanted us to fire at night so that they could sleep. (laughs) I put that colloquially. It kept the heads of the Viet Cong down at night and gave the army some respite. So we used to 
spend most nights firing intermittently at the request of the army. Can you tell us about some of the other experiences that you had in Vietnam? Were you concerned about these fast motor torpedo boats that a few of the North Vietnamese had? Uh, we weren't. Where, where we were, we were mainly not up on the border in the DMZ, as it was called, the demilitarised zone. Hobart in its first commission was up in the border area where they were under attack. But we spent most of our time down in the southern end of Vietnam. What was more of a problem was the likelihood of mines and the likelihood of fishing boats and fishing lines. Any close calls there? Yes. (laughs) Um, There was an incident which I remember well. I'd been up all night firing and then in the early morning in thick fog we had to ammunition and oil and uh, I couldn't stay on the bridge any longer. I needed to go to the toilet. And so I handed over to my second in command and I no longer got to the, t- no sooner got to the toilet than the whole ship shook. And I thought, oh, hell, surely. And uh, he'd collided and sunk a Vietnamese fishing boat. Fortunately, there were no casualties. But that was a, an exciting moment, which uh, was difficult because there were so many fishing boats and so on around and in thick fog not easy to see. And you're close to the coast because you're providing the naval gunfire support. The trawlers are coming out. They're flat-bottom craft, so they're not going to go right out to sea. They're coastal fishing. You're in their livelihood area where they they get their food. And, of course, they had fishing nets as well. And how do you know whether actually one's genuine and one's not? It's difficult. Yes. For your service in Vietnam, you were appropriately recognised as well, as I understand. Mm. Yes, to my surprise, I was made a commander of the British Empire, CBE, and that to me was recognition of the ship's company more than me. I mean, it was a credit to the ship's company because I took over after the ship had been damaged by friendly American missile. And it was a great credit to the ship's company because morale was a bit low, rather naturally, because a lot of people were still on board who were there when the ship was hit and a couple of sailors were killed. And so I say we had a bit of a morale problem to begin with, but they rallied and they really were marvellous. Your career goes from strength to strength. You're promoted to Commodore in 1971 and you then take command of Melbourne, our big carrier, in 1977. Now, you've been on board Arunta, which is one of our tribal class destroyers from the Second World War. Then you've been on the county class cruise of Shropshire. You've been on destroyer escorts, Derwent, DDGs, Hobart, and now you're on our premiership. What's it like to be skipper and involved in the Queen's Silver Jubilee celebrations in the Fleet Review that year? That was probably the highlight of my career. It was quite a task to take Melbourne with 1,200 men on board in a ship that really shouldn't be still working. It was so old, and the conditions on board for the ship's company were terrible. But we had a good trip over, and when we arrived in England, we were welcomed by everyone. It was fantastic. We were the only ship in the fleet review that had aircraft still on board because all the British carriers had landed their aircraft. So we stood out a little in the review. The day of the review, unfortunately, was miserable. There was a roaring gale. We were all anchored in such a way, and it was planned that we'd be beam on to the Royal Yacht 
as it steamed past, with the ship's company giving three cheers. That's how it was on the rehearsal day, but on the actual day, it was a gale. And we were stern on to the Royal Yacht. Oh, bad luck. And so it was very disappointing. Just as the Royal Yacht approached, our ensign fell down, which was a bit of a problem. Anyway, such that was such, I thought that was the end of my career because the Admiral was furious. But that night, I was lucky to be on board Ark Royal and have dinner in the presence of the Queen. And after dinner, the captains of the non-British ships were presented to Her Majesty. Somebody had obviously tipped Her Majesty off about the ensign because she made a remark. And I can recall saying, ma'am, Sir Walter Raleigh laid his cloak before Her Majesty. I laid my ensign. Prince Philip was not amused, but the Queen sort of gave me a smile. Well, that would come from a schooled man of history, so well done to you <laughs> and a most appropriate answer. Did we find out the reason why we lost the ensign? Was yes, it sloppy the, rope work? No, or? no, the Inglefield clip broke. Oh, of it, all the times. It, it was a brand new ensign. Oh. And so it shouldn't have happened. But, of course, those those things happen. Especially in a gale. It's like accidents. Yeah. I mean, you don't plan an accident. They just happen. But it's those funny incidents that you remember. And then after that, we took part in a, an exercise around the UK and we ended up in Rotterdam, which was not a pleasant experience because our government had just decided to buy a French replenishment ship and not the Dutch ship, but that was exciting. Then we went to Naples on the way home where we had a great time. Yes, that would have been good shore leave, I'm sure. Yes, and uh, I insisted that the ship's company go ashore in uniform, which was not popular because we were on an official visit. And while we were there, 280 of the ship's company volunteered to go to the Pope's summer palace at Gondolfo. And so 280 sailors from Melbourne went and stood in the courtyard of the summer palace. And I remember... The Pope, very first, uh, we took our caps off, as you normally do at church services. The very first words the Pope said when he came out on the balcony was, would the sailors please put their caps on? And that brought the house down. And then he spoke about his trip to Australia and so on. And afterwards was when I learnt that I was having a private audience with the Pope, which I took my two chaplains, one Roman Catholic, one non-Roman Catholic, and myself to the Pope. The Roman Catholic Padre, I don't think has ever forgiven me because I'm not a Roman Catholic. <laughs> well, that's certainly an event, the day the Admiral met the Pope. Mm. And, and which particular <laughs> Pope was this? Pope John Paul. He'd been to Australia a couple of years beforehand, which was marvellous. Yeah, well, well done But I'll you. never forget being in that room when he walked in somehow. He had a presence, hard to describe. And of course, he chatted for about 20 minutes. So in 1983, you retire after, what, almost over four decades of service to the nation and the Navy. What do you do in retirement? My wife and I decided that we'd leave Canberra, leave Australia and go to England because my wife was English. We did that. And after about two months, three months in England, I was going to stay in England for 12 months to get right away from the bureaucracy and right away from uh, all the problems that I'd had. Um, and to give your wife some time at home. Yes. 
I'd only been in England a couple of months when the Chief of Defence Force rang up and said there's a position going which I thought you might be interested in and which he thought I was reasonably qualified to apply for. He told me it was about tall ships. I had previously had a bit to do with Admiral Stevenson, who had been looking after the tall ships in its early stages, and Bill Worth whom I'd served with in CETO headquarters. Um, So I knew a bit about it. Anyway, uh, I decided to apply. And uh, out of 52 applicants, I landed the job. So I became the director of tall ships in the Bicentennial Authority. And look, I must disclose that I remember that function very, very well. It was the most joyous of occasions in Sydney Harbour. I've never known a more wonderful time and being in the Navy I was under your command like so many other officers at the time and I was actually posted to look after the Irish ship Uh which was called the Asgard. That's right. And um, my greatest duty was to actually receive and distribute the official bicentenary shirts to the ship's company and I remember marching on board with a box of 50 shirts to be distributed to like I think 70 or 80 mad Irishmen who and We shouldn't be fooled by the Irish because they didn't actually sail their ship from Ireland to Australia. They put it on a freighter and they unloaded it in Australian waters to get here. But that never got across to the audience. But I can personally vouch for the fact that it was just the most wonderful event. It would have been very challenging in that you were dealing with, I imagine, representatives of every nation of the world. You had these massively and important dignitaries on every ship, and it was quite a task. Perhaps I could go back to the Irish vessel. During one of my trips abroad to try and get ships to come to that event, the Irish said it was too small to come. It couldn't sail here and so on. I convinced them that they should ship it out here, which I did. And they said, but it'd still be too small. I said, look, all you need to do is have the biggest Irish flag that the ship could fly. And I said, everyone will look at the Irish ship. And that's what happened. I organised the event in Fremantle, Adelaide, Melbourne, Hobart, Brisbane and Sydney. A most exhausting time. In fact, that would be the most exhausting posting I ever (laughs) undertook. And this is the first year of your retirement, is it not? Yes. And what's your wife thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, after four years, I'd had enough. Anyway, it was a great event, and the ships that came were very cooperative, especially the Polish ship, which, again, took a lot of negotiating. I can recall that it got as far as London, uh, England, and then it said it couldn't come because they didn't have cold weather gear, and so it couldn't come. So what we had to do is supply it with cold weather gear for the old ship's company. But then they did do us proudly because they sailed under the harbour bridge under full sail. Well, all I can personally say, and the nation just loved that event, and, I mean, no-one puts it on like the Navy. I spent two hours kneeling alongside Prince Charles because he took the salute of all the ships in the parade. And the reason I had to kneel there was because in those days he was meant to be up on a pedestal so he could be seen but they were worried about security and so he refused to get up on the pedestal and then I was between the TV cameras and him so I had to kneel to be out of view of the TV cameras. His Royal Highness and Princess Diana on that occasion you would have thought they were on a honeymoon. Yeah. They were just so so wonderful. Yes it's sad isn't it. How do you reflect today 
of your time at the sea? I wouldn't be where I am today or wouldn't have achieved what I have if it hadn't been the naval training. I miss it. I still am involved with the tall ships because one of the things I did after the bicentenary was I kept in touch with the International Tall Ships Association and I was the Australian representative on that. I used to go to England twice a year to international meetings and so on. I did that until I turned 82 when I decided that I was a silly old grey-haired man at the end of the table and it's about time I left. But I still love the sea. I'm lucky in that I have a, a wife who was a third officer in the Wrens, and so she was naval trained. And I think my life has been enhanced by her understanding of what it was like to be in the Navy. And when I was in the Navy, you had no choice. You did as you were told. You were posted where you went. You didn't have a choice. And so from one day to the next, one didn't know where one would be next. For instance, I was sitting in Navy office, as you said, as the Director of Manning and Training, and I was suddenly overnight posted in command of Hobart. Last thing I thought would ever happen. Rear Admiral Rothsay Swan, AO, CBE, it's been an absolute honour to hear your career today. Thank you for your service and sharing your story with us all. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Angus Horden's conversation with Rothsay Swan. If you liked the episode, please post about it on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLPod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...